Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What about you? Mine would be, without a doubt, I would volunteer at Carlsbad Caverns National Park in New Mexico, and I would want to do the cave tours. I would want to be the ranger that does, you know, some of the ranger-led cave tours. You think they give that uh, job to the volunteers with, with no cave tour experience? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Welcome to our mailbag episode, where we answer questions from our listeners about the national parks, hiking, camping, road trip itineraries, and a wide variety of travel-related topics. Today, we're sharing some thoughts about dealing with the fear of steep drop-offs along a trail or a road, plus how we capture in our wish bucket all the places we want to visit, and what kind of shoes are best to wear when hiking Haleakala's Sliding Sands Trail. Plus, we'll give our opinion about a listener's Washington trip itinerary and talk about which national park we would choose to volunteer in and in what capacity. (laughs) So many great questions. Coming up next. Okay, so spring break. We are in the throes of spring break for the next couple of weeks. And because of all the extreme weather we've had in the West, a lot of travelers have had to either cancel or rework their travel plans. Yeah, I don't think spring's coming this year. I think it's going to go winter to summer. (laughs) It certainly hasn't arrived yet where we are. (laughs) No, there's too many atmospheric rivers Mm -hmm. heading towards the national parks. Yes, and California has been hit really hard, as you all know, especially, let's talk about Yosemite for a minute. They have had unprecedented snowfalls. Um, for several weeks now in Yosemite, and they even had to close the park for, gosh, I think it was a week or maybe 10 days, and it just recently reopened after they dug themselves out. Did you know that some of the snowdrifts were 15 feet in some areas? I did not know that, but it doesn't surprise me with all the snow they're getting. The whole Sierras, they're just getting pounded with snow. 
right all winter and and still and and that wreaks havoc on people's travel plans right it's a great thing for the drought in the west all of the snowfall and all of this rain but it's not such a great thing for spring break travelers we have had a lot of people email us in the last couple weeks saying that they have plans to go to Yosemite for spring break, and they don't know what to do, if they should cancel, if they should still go. And that that's a tough one. It is a tough one because you think by mid-March, late March, kind of the winter weather is going to be over, but I don't know. It just it just keeps coming. So it's it's hard to advise people on what to do because the weather's just so unusual that it could be just one of those unusual years where winter just lingers. Right. Now, according to the park website, and you know, this I'm sure changes by the day, but currently they have reopened Yosemite, but access to the park is via Highway 140 only. There are no other roads you can take into the park. And they're telling visitors that they have plowed the sidewalks in the valley and they've plowed the roads, but Visitors are still going to need winter clothes, and they highly recommend not just winter boots, but micro spikes for hiking on the those um, paved trails and sidewalks in the valley because, you know, they're still slippery. Yes, and they're also recommending not to hike on the snow-covered trails. The, the non-paved ones, just the regular old trails. Right. So I think the question that people have to ask themselves who have spring break plans for Yosemite is, what is it you want to do there? Because if you're thinking that you're going to be hiking some of those amazing trails, you probably aren't. If you want to see Yosemite in this incredible winter wonderland, well, I guess now <laughs> now is your chance. You know, and, and it depends on how comfortable you are driving in wintry weather and that kind of thing. So it's a tough call for sure. Also, it was just announced, you know, further south, Kings Canyon and Sequoia are both closed. Kings Canyon says they'll be closed at least to the end of March. And Sequoia, Matt, said they're going to be closed until at least April 15th. So anybody with spring break plans up to that point will have to cancel and find someplace else to go. I know we've talked about in the past that you really want to go to Sequoia sometime when there's snow there to see the snow on the trees and the trails around the big trees, which is great. I'd love to do that too. The problem is now they're getting too much snow. I mean, it's so much snow, it's it's causing them to close the roads. So uh, yeah, you have to just have the perfect conditions in order to, to do that or to see that site. Well, exactly, because I want to see it in the snow, but I also don't necessarily want to deal with driving through the snow to get there and the possibility of getting stuck or having an accident. We had hoped in January and February and even in March to drive down through California and go to Yosemite and Kings and Sequoia. But Gosh, it's just been week after week of bad news, flooding and roads closed and alerts, please do not travel unless you have to. So that wish is still in my wish bucket. Yeah, we should also mention it's not just California. Right. Right. In Utah as well, uh, for instance, in Zion, the Narrows, uh, hiking up the Virgin River, the Narrows Trail, it's closed. They're not allowing people to hike up the river, so that trails is closed. Right. And that's disappointing to a lot of people who have that on their list of things to do. So they close the river when the 
cubic feet per second is above 150. And I guess it's the other day they said it was like 400 and some. So they are predicting that the Narrows is going to be closed for several months. Now, hopefully that's going to change. But again, you know, you want to check on that before you go. I was surprised to see how much snow southern Utah has gotten this winter. It seems like every time I saw an Instagram photo of somebody in one of the Utah parks, there was snow, like Bryce Canyon. Yeah, Bryce Canyon is very snowy. They've even closed the Navajo Loop, um, not just because of snow, but they had a retaining wall collapse. So you can't do that. Yeah, and some of the slot canyons in southern Utah have been closed. I know there were some tragic accidents in some of the slot canyons. So it's been a tough winter, and it's continuing. That's right. So... For all you spring breakers who are heading to the West, just make sure that you check the park websites um, for up-to-date information before you go. Because, you know, everything that we have just said, they could get a week of sunny, warm weather and things could improve dramatically. So who knows? And for sure, have a plan B. Right. So just in case your initial plans don't work out. Maybe plan C and D as well. Okay. Okay. We're going to get into our questions? Yes, let's get started. Our first question comes from Jeanette, and she wrote, After being a city dweller all my life in New York City, we retired two years ago to Prescott, Arizona. It has been a goal of mine to get out to many of the national parks and other noteworthy locations to explore and hike, and we're now in a great location to do that, and we have the time. Unfortunately, I have found I have a fear of driving on narrow winding mountain roads with no guardrails and a fear of hiking where there are steep drop-offs. Do you have any advice on how to adapt to these situations? If I decide to forego anything that fits those descriptions, how do I find out in advance if the roads or hiking trails include these steep drop-offs? So that's from Jeanette from Prescott, not Prescott, right, Arizona. Right. It looks like it would be pronounced Prescott. However, my parents used to live in Sedona, and I learned while visiting them from my dad that it is pronounced Prescott by the locals. So if you want to sound like a local, call it Prescott. Mm-hmm. Prescott. Okay. Well, so this is a good question, and I, th- I think it's probably a question that a lot of people have in their minds. They just never ask it. Uh, about steep drop-offs. Yeah, people have fear of heights. They do. And it's interesting because, so a fear of heights is called acrophobia. But for a lot of hikers, including myself, it's not so much the fear of heights, it's the fear of falling from great heights. If I were in a skyscraper on the 100th floor looking down, I'm not afraid of that, but I am afraid of falling. So I'm afraid of being on those exposed edges. I'm afraid of landing. Oh, that would hurt too. (laughs) The falling part doesn't bother me at all. Actually, though, Matt, you are not afraid. I am not afraid to my detriment. I should be more afraid. Yeah. I, I have been way too close to the eggs on, on trails that I literally would have died if I had slipped. So uh, yeah, it's it's probably actually good to have a healthy fear or a healthy respect for drop-offs and heights. So Jeanette had two questions. First, how to find out in advance if the roads or hiking trails include steep drop-offs. It is a little tough to determine ahead of time if you've never done the trail or the road. We'll talk about a few ways you can look this up. One is go on the site All Trails. 
alltrails.com. We use this a lot. There's a paid subscription. There's also a free version of it. And what you do is you look up the trail, read the description, and then read the trip reports that the hikers have posted. And they're usually in reverse chronological order, so the newest first. And if you read, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 of those, and you can do that pretty quick, if there are drop-offs, usually people talk about them. And another good way to find out, too, is by going to, if this is in a national park, going to that particular park's website and reading about the hiking trails and read the description. For instance, when we went to Acadia National Park, I looked up there. There are a few hikes there like the Beehive and the Precipice. And the park does a really good job of saying, not for anyone with the fear of heights. There are ladders you have to climb with steep drop-offs and, and so on. So research online these particular hikes. If you just Google them, a lot of people have blogs about the hikes, so you can find out a lot ahead of time. Yeah, you can. The other question you asked was how to adapt to those situations. There's a difference between the trail having steep drop-offs and those drop-offs being dangerous. So for instance, sometimes you'll be walking along a trail and four feet or five feet or 10 feet over, yeah, there's a steep, dangerous drop-off. But the trail next to it that you're on is perfectly flat. There's no obstacles and you can walk right past those. Yeah, if you go to the edge, that's that's going to make it more dangerous. And another specific situation is bluff trails around ocean beaches, you know, above ocean beaches. A lot of times those are soft and give away just naturally. So, you know, like, don't go to the edge of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always a, a kind of a no-no. But, yeah, sometimes people say, well, yeah, that trail had a lot of steep drop-offs. Yeah, but they weren't dangerous. Right. And I think that's a really good point, Matt. It depends on how wide the trail is that you're walking on and how far away from the edge you can get. So for instance, we have this trail, one of my favorite trails in Washington State. It's in a national forest. It's called Kendall Catwalk. And it's literally this trail that the trail crew blasted on the side of a mountain. It's part of the Pacific Crest Trail. So they, you know, they had to make a way through. I was very afraid to do it the first time. I thought I would just go look at it and then turn around. But the trail is actually at least three feet wide, which may not sound like a lot, but when, when you're walking on it, it's a good margin. Right. And and there are no trip hazards there, so you're not going to accidentally uh, you know, trip over a rock and, and, and go over the eggs. A lot of times when you're on the trail, the drop-offs, a lot of the drop-offs that we have hiked past, the section of the trail that has the drop-off next to it is not very long on the trail. You know, it might be, let's say, a 10-foot section or a 20-foot section or maybe sometimes just even less than that. And on those sections, just, I know it's easier said than done, but just focus on the three feet of trail right in front of you and, you know, just <laughs> keep breathing and you're going to get past it pretty quick because, you know, 10, 20 feet is, is not a very long stretch and you'll be on your way and back on a safe part of the trail. That's right. There are times, you know, you can do all the research you want to, but there are times where you will come upon some frightening parts of the trail unexpectedly that you hadn't planned on. When we were on the Grand Canyon rafting trip, our guides took us on a couple of different trails, and there was no way to look up what the trail was. We we didn't even really care. We just went, and there were some of the sketchiest trails I have ever been on, on those Grand Canyon trails. Yes. Yes, they were. Yeah. So 
the only way I got through it is as I'm panicking and my heart's racing, I did find it really helpful to look ahead on the trail. If you look down at your feet in those frightening areas, you will see the drop off right below your feet. And for me, that just freezes me in place. So if I, like Matt said, if I look ahead to the end of it, if I look four feet in front of me to where I'm walking, it really helps sort of propel my body to the end and get through it quickly without that panic and that freezing up. She also asked about roads. Yes. uh, With steep drop-offs. Okay, that's maybe a little bit harder to find because, you know, there are just some regular highways that are that have steep drop-offs. A lot of them, though, are known, like Moki Dugway in Utah, the Burr Trail in Utah, Schaefer Trail in Utah. <laughs> There's a pattern here. Right. We did an entire episode, number 71, about 12 white knuckle drives. Don't do any of those. (laughs) Right. And my only advice for that, Jeanette, is if you find yourself on one of those roads and hopefully whoever you are with is driving, I just close my eyes. Uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) I do too sometimes when I'm I'm driving. (laughs) That's what I'm afraid of. (laughs) Let Jesus take the wheel and you'll be fine. (laughs) When we did the Schaefer Trail, oh my gosh, I had every intention of rolling down my window and sticking my phone out and videotaping the whole thing up the switchbacks. I could not even roll down my window. I couldn't look out my window. I had my eyes closed. I was so frightened. So I don't know what to tell you about that, but just close your eyes on that one. (laughs) And if you're on the passenger side, be sure to use your imaginary break frequently. Put your hands on the dashboard. It really does help a lot. It helps the driver (laughs) concentrate, Uh, maybe gasp from time to time intermittently. What about screaming? Yeah, that too. That All that really helps the driver out a lot because the driver's not only trying to pay attention to the road, then the driver has to react to all of your body gyrations. This is why I close my eyes. Uh, well, yeah, you're still using the brake even when your eyes are closed. We should just keep going. Okay. Okay, so before we wrap it up, one other thing that you could do, which I have done many times in the past, is if you do find out that a trail that you want to do has a scary drop-off section, typically those are at the very end, right? You get up to the top of a mountain, you scramble up. Oftentimes, I will go on the trail with Matt, and then I will not do the very end. For instance, Mount Storm King. We talked about that in Olympic National Park. The end of it, you climb up ropes, steep drop-offs. And so I hiked three quarters of it, and it was a lovely day. I sat on a rock and waited for you, hoping you'd come back. Because I had the car keys. Well, (laughs) you're right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it was better that you stayed back. Matter matter of fact, I, I probably should have stayed back. The last pitch was pretty steep, and I'm, I'm not sure that it added a whole lot to the value of the, of the hiking experience. But anyway, yeah, there are times when the very end sketchy, and, and you just don't do that part. Right. So I feel your anxiety, Jeanette. I was looking at some uh, websites about how to cure yourself of acrophobia, and you know they suggest start out simple, start out easy, 
with some hikes with maybe just a little bit of a drop off and work your way up. So whatever works for you, I do know, I know that for me, thinking about those hikes with the steep drop-offs fills me with anxiety and worry, and that's not fun for me, so I get that. And the other thing is, no matter what my brain says, oh, this is just, you know, it's only... <laughs> can, can we just stop right there for a second? <laughs> your brain's telling you stuff? <laughs> yes. Doesn't your brain tell you stuff? <laughs> Uh, (laughs) okay so never mind (laughs) even though my brain says hey karen it's only you know it's only an eight foot section it's easy you can do it you're not going to fall when your body freezes up and your heart starts racing you have no control over that right so i get it i feel you and i think it's just something that those of us who suffer from that have to sort of deal with work around and um you know, hopefully maybe work our way up in baby steps. But yeah, do research ahead of time. And if you do find yourself in that position, don't look down. Yeah, it would be too bad if it kept you from doing some great hikes, right? right? Um, So anyway, uh, maybe just the amount of experience you have doing these, you do it over and over again, and and it goes down. And and again, it's perfectly fine to have a healthy respect for drop-offs. Matter of fact, we all should. Yes. Um, But it shouldn't keep you from doing them. Agree. Okay, so uh, Karen, what is our next question? All right, this one comes from Amy, and she wrote, I have often heard you refer to your, quote, wish bucket, end quote, of places you would like to visit. My question is, how do you keep track of all the places you would like to visit? Is there an actual wish bucket? I often see so many places that I'd like to visit, and I wonder how I can keep track of all of them. The wish bucket. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure people know what that is a reference to. Oh, I think they do. Oh, oh, you think? (laughs) I think we could just move right on to the question. (laughs) Um, But it's it's probably good to to tell the story again. Really? Uh, Yeah. After we wrote our first book, Dear Bob and Sue, our second book actually was a book called Dory's Ho about our Dory River raft trip on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And we told the story kind of at the beginning of that book when we were planning our trip to do this Dory trip. You had said to me one time that trip had been in your wish bucket for years. (laughs) And like I didn't know what you meant by wish bucket. I thought you meant bucket list. And I said, oh, you mean your bucket list? And you said, yeah, yeah, my bucket full of wishes. So we had to pause. (laughs) at that and i said that that, no the the reference to bucket list is it's a list of things you want to do before you kick the bucket before you die and you were adamant that that's not what it meant it was i think you even said yeah haven't you ever heard of of a pocket full of wishes (laughs) (laughs) this is a bucket full of wishes so you're digging the hole deeper because it would be a pocket list right and what I love about this story is even though early on, early in the conversation, you knew that you were wrong, you like doubled down, you tripled down. <laughs> no, it's a wish bucket. And I tried to explain, no, it's a it's a bucket list. And as I have done many times, what have we we've been married like 57 years now? <laughs> I, I thought, you know, the best way to go with this is just agree. And now, from now on, it's a wish bucket. It's your imaginary bucket that you put all your wishes in. 
In my defense, the phrase bucket list originated back in 2007 with the movie The Bucket List starring Jack Nicholson. And we never saw that movie, didn't even know about it. I actually never even heard of it until much, much later. You should just let this one go. Let it go. You're quadrupling down. (laughs) Now... With thousands of people <laughs> listening to you. That's fine. <laughs> if you want to go go deeper, I, I respect your commitment to this. All right. But what I love about this is for, for those of you who have read our book or heard us talk about this in a previous episode or follow us on Instagram, so many people now refer to their wish bucket. And it almost makes me want to cry because... I think it's the nicest, sweetest thing. It's like all these people have my back, and now they're referring That's... to it as their wish bucket. So, see, no one ever has my back, even when I'm, even when you can prove that I'm right. No one has my back. But that's fine. That's that's my role. That's my it's my place on this earth <laughs> to be right but wrong at the same time. So we'll just call it a wish bucket. But joking aside, yeah. Let's answer Amy's question. Yes. Like how, do, how do we keep track of um, the, the wish bucket? Well, I have my system, but do you want to go first, Matt, and say how you keep track of yours? Yeah. my my. <laughs> it's I do whatever you tell me. <laughs> right. so, so my wish bucket's pretty easy. That's it's just like, right. what are we doing this week? All right, Amy. So here's what I do. I think the key is simplicity. You might be at a party talking to someone and they tell you about a great hike or you're in the dentist's office and you're thumbing through a magazine. I think you have to be able to capture this thing quickly and easily. So I only use my phone. Now, I am sure there are a lot of people out there who have spreadsheets and apps and all kinds of fancy things to keep track of this stuff. But what I do is I either screenshot something. So if I see something on a website, I screenshot it or I open up my email and I jot myself a quick note. And the email thing works great because this is what I do. For instance, when I heard about Utah's Canara Falls, which we recently did, that has been in my bucket for a long time. When I first heard about it, I open up my email, I address it to myself, and in the subject line, I simply write Utah Canara Falls. I send it to myself. Then later when I have time, I move it over to my travel folder. Then when we're getting ready to go to Utah, I simply go to that folder. All of these items are now by state, right? So I look at the Utah ones and I have them all right there. I can do more research. I can figure out where exactly they are. So that's what I do. Super quick, super easy because we all have our phones with us at every minute of the day, right? So it's your wish folder now? Is it the wish folder? (laughs) What's, it is more of a wish folder than a wish bucket, I, I hate to say. Yes. And not even close to a pocket full of wishes. No, it's way more than a pocket full of wishes. Then after we have seen that place, I go back in and I delete it. But I'm always adding new places. And so the wish bucket never empties. Well, also, I will say that I know... You get a lot of good ideas from Instagram. I think Instagram has been like our number one source for travel inspiration because I will see these photos that other people are posting or videos and I will immediately want to go there. On Instagram, it's very simple to save travel ideas. There is a way to bookmark any post and then it is saved onto your Instagram account. And then you just go into the settings and look at saved and all of those places that you bookmark 
bookmarked are there. So Instagram makes it really easy to save those places. You know, one of the things I love too is a lot of people now don't share locations on Instagram because they don't want this particular place overrun with people, right? So there are there are a lot of people who don't share the location. But for me, that's like a treasure hunt. <laughs> yeah, I know. You you have yet to not be able to find the place. When people are secretive, you always can find it. It's a challenge. It is a throwdown challenge. I will never walk away from it until I find out where that place is because it's just, it's so much fun to do research. You know, a lot of people on social media, they want it spoon fed to them. They get mad if if the location isn't told. People got upset with us when we posted something about New River Gorge National Park and we didn't put what state it's in. We got a lot of outraged people commenting, you didn't say what state this is in. For heaven's sake. Well, not everyone has access to Google. <laughs> and they can't type in New River Gorge National Park. Right. Where is it? All right. I digress. But that's what I do, Amy, to keep things in my wish bucket. I use my phone and capture it in whatever way I can. Screenshot, uh, send the link in an email to myself, just send a typed note to myself, and then I can do further research later. Okay. Hopefully, Amy, that answered your question yes. and probably even more than answered it. Right. <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Leanne in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So Leanne wrote, we are going to Maui in May and we'll visit Haleakala National Park. We plan on hiking the Sliding Sands Trail and we're wondering what type of shoes would be best to wear for hiking in the sand. Oh, the Sliding Sands Trail. Such a good one. Now, just off the top of my head, I know it's called the Sliding Sands Trail, but you're not really hiking through a lot of sand. I mean, it seemed like the trail itself was pretty firm. It is. Thank goodness. This is not one of those parks like Great Sand Dunes or White Sands where you're actually going up and down the sand, which is a good thing because this trail has a lot of elevation <laughs> loss and then gain. But yeah, the trail is um, its rather hard packed, kind of gravelly, and also it's required by law that hikers stay on the trail due to the fragile ecosystem of the surrounding area. So shoe-wise, if you're bringing hiking boots to Maui because you're planning on doing a lot of hiking, then those would be great. Or otherwise, just any pair of closed toe shoes like trail runners or tennis shoes, but definitely not flip-flops. Right. No, no, I agree. I really enjoyed that trail. I wish we would have spent more time hiking, but there's a couple of things you should know about this particular hike. Regardless of what time of year you're up there, it's going to be windy and it's probably going to be cool. Yes. Uh, we were there, we were there late November, but down by the beaches, it was a warm day in the seventies, in the eighties up there. It was up there. It was windy and cold. So be prepared for wind and it being cooler. Right. We had to stop at Walmart on our way and buy sweatshirts to wear because like a lot of people who are packing for Hawaii, we didn't think about taking warm clothes. And you will definitely want some kind of a sweatshirt, a windbreaker, a jacket, something like that. Also, remember that when you start off on this hike, you are starting at an elevation of 10,000 feet. This particular hike, you go down first, you go down into the crater, and then you have to hike back up. So you want to save some 
energy, <laughs> some effort for the hike back out. Right. Most of the strenuous hikes that we do, it's the uphill first, mm-hmm. and then you can kind of zone out and coast coast down. This is the opposite. You're going to really work hard on your way out. Yes. And if you do the whole thing, it's 11 miles out and back, but that's a lot considering the elevation and how windy it's going to be up there. So I think we did, I think we did maybe three miles out, three miles back. And even that much of it is incredible. You'll see some amazing views. You don't have to plan on doing the whole thing if you don't have time or if it you know, just seems like it's too much. Yeah, I really enjoyed that trail and incredible views up there. And there are some requirements about getting permits to go up to that trailhead, right? Well, the thing is, anybody who wants to watch the sunrise and who is driving up there for sunrise needs a permit for sunrise. Even if you don't care about the sunrise, but you want to get an early start on the trail, you're not going to be able to get up there without a sunrise permit. If you plan your visit for seven o'clock or later in the morning, you'll be fine. But what we're saying is don't think, oh, I'm going to start on that trail at 6 a.m. Because you won't unless you have a sunrise permit to get up there. Right. All right. So Leanne, have a wonderful time. And and again, just any kind of good sturdy shoe is going to be fine on that trail. All right, Karen, what's up next? All right, our next email comes from Lisa in Washington State, and she wrote, My partner and I love visiting the National Park sites and want to share them with my teenage kiddo. We are very active and outdoorsy people. She really wants to experience the amazing hikes and travel that we do. The challenge is that she is somewhat recently disabled and very easily fatigued. We're still getting used to the limitations and could use some help finding places to take her. We are limited to wheelchair or very easy walking trails slash sites. What are your thoughts on the best ADA accessible sites and any tips that might be helpful? Okay, great question. And we get this question asked often in various ways. We got a mailbag question from a listener who wants to take their 85-year-old mother who's in a wheelchair to some of the national parks. So yeah, different variations on the same question. Now, the National Park Service says that they are committed to ensuring that people with disabilities have equal opportunity to benefit from park facilities, programs, services, and activities, whether these activities are inside or outside. So what I found is the National Park Service has created a good website that has an interactive map of all the National Park Service sites, and you simply touch on the icon of the park you want to visit, and it opens up that park's page and talks about the accessibility features. So we're going to put a link to that in our show notes. And that is something that will really be helpful to you, Lisa, and anyone else who wants to know about all of these parks, right? Because it's going to include uh, national monuments and things like that. Yeah. And another thing that we found that was really pretty useful when we were doing the research is there was a study by Aging in Place about the most wheelchair-friendly national parks. And so we'll give just a little brief overview of what they say. And the most wheelchair-friendly park in the United States is Badlands in South Dakota. That was kind of a surprise to me. Was it a surprise to you? It was, but now that I think about it, uh, a lot of the trails are flat. A lot of the areas have boardwalks where you can Mm -hmm. uh, use a wheelchair. So yeah, even though the terrain isn't flat... You got overlooks, you've got flat trails in places that go through the Badlands, and yeah, they've made those areas wheelchair accessible. 
Right. And Badlands, if you haven't been there yet, Lisa, is it's an amazing park. We absolutely love that. And and one of the reasons, too, is they have bison there. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we'll put a link to this study also in the show notes. Right. Uh, it, but we're just giving a little bit of a summary of what we learned. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind as we talk about this list is that they based these ratings on not just hiking trails, which you were interested in, Lisa, but also on are the visitor centers accessible? Are the park restaurants and lodges accessible? This is a big picture of accessibility. This is not just the trail system. Coming in second on their list is Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. That South Rim area, if if you haven't been to the South Rim of the Grand Canyon, it is pretty well built up, yet the view from the South Rim is just mind-boggling. Um, <laughs> and a long stretch of that South Rim is paved and wheelchair accessible. Right. This is a fantastic place, especially when you consider that really the Grand Canyon is someplace that everyone needs to see before they die. So whether you have an elderly person or a young person, go to the Grand Canyon. You know, the shuttle buses, which is a great way to get around inside the park, those are accessible. And like Matt said, they have wheelchair-friendly viewpoints and trails. Another thing that um, you could do is take the free shuttle up to Hermit's Rest and check out all the viewpoints along the way. Yep. Okay, so the next one we're going to talk about, which is the one I would have put at number one if it had been up to me, just off the top of my head, would be Yellowstone. Yeah, again, that's fantastic because Yellowstone is such a great park in so many different ways and, and so many incredible things to see there. Some of the most popular attractions like the Old Faithful Geyser and the Upper Geyser Basin. They've got the boardwalks, they've got paved trails, a lot of area where it's wheelchair accessible. Right. And when you look at all the different areas of Yellowstone, because it's huge, almost every section has a lot of wheelchair accessible sites. And we have mentioned in the past that one of our favorite things to do is to drive through Lamar Valley and look at the wildlife. And of course, in this area, you can just basically pull your car off to the side of the road. And sunset is a great time to do this, by the way. And just sit and watch the, the bison roam or, you know, try to spot wolves or grizzly bears. So there are so many things to do in Yellowstone for people with disabilities and I think we've mentioned before that Yellowstone just might be our favorite national park out of all of them because there's just so much to see and do there. Yeah, and we should mention that uh, the visitor centers at Yellowstone National Park, they actually have wheelchairs that are available. So if you have somebody with you who has limited mobility, but maybe not in a wheelchair all the time, but it w would want one for their park visit, those are available on a first-come, first-served basis. Right, and I was surprised to see that actually a lot of the big parks have that available. They have wheelchairs that are out to, to loan for people who are visiting. Check ahead of time before you go if that's something you're interested in. It seems like the national parks, you know, especially the popular ones, are doing a lot of work to update their facilities to accommodate all visitors. A lot of these older parks where the CCC came in in the 1930s and they built the infrastructure, they weren't thinking about accessibility back then. So these parks have had to go back and reconfigure things to, to make them available for everybody. Yeah, and it's great that they have because um, some of these places, we've said this over and over, again, 
Some of the sites in these national parks we think everyone should see sometime in their life. And because they're accessible, everyone has an opportunity to do that. Another park that we didn't see in the study, but I wanted to mention, is Great Sand Dunes National Park. They actually have, at the visitor center, for a loan out, they have special sand wheelchairs. I thought that was pretty cool. I think that's cool, too. So apparently, these sand wheelchairs allow you to navigate the sand dunes. And they're similar to a manual beach wheelchair, but they have the large inflatable tires. So yeah, if you want to use one of these, you just need to go to the visitor center, you have to leave your ID, and you can use the chair for the day and just bring it back 30 minutes before the visitor center closes. Yeah, uh, Lisa, that might be something your teenager would love to do. Sounds cool. And Great Sand Dunes is one of those places that young people love because they, they sled down. We saw some kids... Well, it looked like they were snowboarding, uh, but those probably weren't snowboards they had, were they? No, I think they're sandboards. It's a different kind of device. The, the physics of sliding down sand is very different than snow. But yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Lisa, we, I mean, we could talk about this for the entire episode, but take a look at this park map that shows the accessibility of each park, and then you can kind of decide what looks good for you and your daughter. Okay. Last thing to say on this topic is that the National Park Service has a pass, an entrance pass. It's called the Access Pass, and it's a free lifetime admission for U.S. citizens or permanent residents with permanent disabilities. And that is a great benefit that the National Park Service extends to people with disabilities. Right. And the pass will admit to the pass owner and any accompanying people that are in the private car. So it's good, not just for the person, but for whoever is with them in the car. So yeah, a wonderful program, just like all of the various types of passes that the National Park Service has. Okay, I will put a link to that also. Now I, now I need to make a list yes. of, of all the links. But <laughs> Lots I'll, I'll, of links I will put a this. link to that also in the show notes. Yes, because there is a lot to research and, and hopefully these links will help. Okay, so we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to go to Andy next. Karen, you want to read our next question? I will. Andy wrote, our family, a daughter 10 years old and son 8 years old, has a three-week vacation plan this summer in your neck of the woods, Washington. On this vacation, we'll visit our 100th National Park site. We were hoping to see San Juan Island, San Juan Island National Historical Park, and Lime Kiln State Park. Time-wise, we would only have a day trip available to see the island, staying near Anacortes the day beforehand. Do you think that seeing San Juan Island as a day trip is feasible? We've never been on a Washington ferry, so any tips on taking a trip on the ferry from Anacortes would be appreciated. To fit this into our schedule, we would have one less day available to spend in North Cascades National Park, but we thought this would be a cool experience. So what would you recommend between one day in San Juan Islands with two days in North Cascades National Park versus three days in North Cascades National Park? All right, really good question, Andy. Well, we love the San Juan Islands. For people who are not familiar with the Pacific Northwest, what are the San Juan Islands? It's essentially 172 named islands and reefs in the county of San Juan County, Washington. Uh, but the three most popular are San Juan Island, Orcas Island, and Lopez Island. Those are the 
kind of the biggest and, and most populated ones. Right. When you look at the 172 named islands, almost all of them, except for those three, you would need a private boat. The ferries go to the three big islands. So what is San Juan Island National Historical Park? Is this where, do you want me to do it? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> I loved Andy's question because it let me work in a little history channel here. And this is pretty interesting. Have you ever heard, Matt, of the pig war? Well, Karen, yes, I have. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act ignorant just for the sake of, of our episode here. Okay. What, what the heck is a pig war, Karen? Okay, I love Tell that. us about that. All right, I will tell you about it. The Pig War was a confrontation in 1859 between the United States and the United Kingdom over the British-U.S. border in the San Juan Islands. The borders had not been drawn up specifically yet, and so each country thought that they owned the San Juan Islands. It was called the Pig War because it was triggered by the shooting of a pig. It's also called the Pig Episode, the Pig and Potato War, the San Juan Boundary Dispute, and the Northwestern Boundary Dispute. Was her name Rachel? Who? The pig. <laughs> I don't know. The pig's name isn't mentioned here. <laughs> There's a statue of a pig downtown in Pike Place Market whose name is Rachel. And I was wondering if it's the same pig. I don't think it's the same pig, Matt. I think it is. <laughs> I think it's I think it's the same pig. All right. Well, I don't have the notes here about the name of the pig specifically, but what happened was an American farmer named Lyman Cutler, who had moved on to San Juan Island, claiming rights to live there under the Donation Land Claim Act, he found a pig rooting in his garden, eating his potatoes. And this was not the first occurrence. So as a result, Cutler shot the pig and killed it. Now it turned out that the pig was owned by an Irishman who was employed by the Hudson's Bay Company to run the sheep ranch on the island. So this started the whole pig war. Now, after more than a decade of confrontation, the dispute was finally peacefully resolved. And despite being referred to as a war, the good news is there were no casualties on either side, except for, of course, the pig. Didn't work out well for the pig, did it? It did not. No. But because of that, yes. this National Historical Park has two sections. It has the American camp and the English camp. And, you know, this is a great little park to visit. I actually visited this years ago. Without me? Yes. <laughs> One of my girlfriends has a vacation home on the island, and we were on a girl's trip, and we went to this park. We hiked up to the top of one of the um, – it's not a mountain. It's more like a hill, but we hiked to the top, and there are incredible 360-degree views of the island and the, and the ocean. And so this will be a fun park for you guys to visit, Andy. So, yeah, you should definitely do that. And as you mentioned, Andy, the other thing you can do is go to Lime Kiln State Park. Now, Lime Kiln Point is considered one of the best whale watching spots on Earth. So it's overlooking the ocean and these pods of killer whales. We don't call them killer whales anymore. They're orcas. They pass through this area every May through September. They're actually feeding on salmon close to the shoreline and... The peak times to see the orcas are when the salmon run. 
Visitors can watch the action from a historic lighthouse that was built in 1919 or from a nearby sea cliff. Yes, that would be a great thing to do, especially if you could see whales from there. So I think that your plan is a good one because the ferry sails into the darling town of Friday Harbor. And this has, you know, you step off the boat and you're in Friday Harbor and it has cute little shops. It has some great restaurants. Some of them have outdoor decks where you're looking at the ferries. So Andy, you could, since you are spending the night in Anacortes, and for people who don't know, that is the ferry dock that these ferries go up to the San Juan Islands from. It's about 90 minutes north of Seattle. It's not out of downtown Seattle. So Andy, you get up in the morning, you take the ferry up, you could either you know start by visiting San Juan Historical Park, and then have lunch and then go to Lime Kiln, or you could do it in reverse. But it would be a great day. And yes, you could add absolutely do it in one day. Yeah. Well, now that they've changed the ferry system and moved it to reservation, yes, you can do this in one day, you know, back a few years ago. And it's just so popular in the summertime that you would literally be waiting for hours on both ends just to get on a ferry. And so that since they've now moved it to reservations, you know when your sailing is. And so you can show up and, and it cuts that waiting time down. Now, The trick is, of course, you have to get reservations. You do, and that is tricky. And you need to be on the Washington State Ferry website as soon as they're released. Unfortunately, we don't have a date for you yet. We don't know when they're going to be released. So keep checking because those ferry reservations go in a nanosecond. If you can't get the reservations, then there's no point in planning this, right? You could spend that extra day in North Cascades. Also, we should mention that the sailing time from Anacortes to San Juan Island is one hour. So it's a beautiful ferry ride up there. We just love to take the ferry up, go have lunch in Friday Harbor and take the ferry back. Yeah, I I enjoy any ferry ride in the Pacific Northwest, just, you know, back and forth between these these places. I, I just love the Washington State Ferry System. It's really fun. And I think it's especially something that your kids are going to love, Andy. And you know what you could do what Matt does is when you drive your car onto the boat and the boat's moving, you know, you can pretend like you're steering the boat with your car steering wheel because <laughs> that always gets a laugh out of somebody. <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing it. And- As long as people laugh, I'm going to keep doing it. I don't know why you haven't learned this lesson. If you want me to stop doing stupid stuff, just stop laughing at me. Because if I get a reaction, I'm going to keep doing it. I know. It's so stupid. I have to laugh. But anyway, we think that's a good plan, Andy, because with your kids being eight years old and 10 years old, two days in North Cascades National Park is probably going to be plenty to see all the highlights, do some short trails, and then you've got your day in the San Juan Islands. So great plan. Just be sure you get those reservations. All right, Karen, is that it? I know. We have one more. One more. What do you got? This question is from Mary. She wrote, if you had to pick one national park to volunteer in, which park would it be? And what position would you enjoy doing? This might be something to consider for my husband and I when we retire. What a great question. Um, That is a great question, and I know a lot of people consider this when they (laughs) get to retirement age, and one thing to think about, um, because we actually know some people who do this, is that a lot of the parks are seasonal, just because maybe they're in the mountains or just whatever because of weather, and so some people will be rangers just for the season, and then others will move season to season. 
Like they'll be in the mountains in the summertime. They'll be in Everglades in the winter and, and move around based on the seasons if they want to do it full time. So Karen, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. Um, you know, the job I think I could do every day when we hike in the mountains, especially like in Mount Rainier National Park, and we go to the lookout towers, and I'm thinking of the Fremont lookout tower up by the sunrise area. To be the ranger that's up in that lookout all day long, that would be a cool job. That would be a cool job. Yeah. I never thought of that because, first of all, you would get to hike to... Well, wait a second. I was going to say you'd get to do a fabulous hike every day, but you might actually get to sleep up there. You might. Uh, I was kind of looking around at that one. I didn't see any place to sleep. I th think that ranger is a volunteer, which is fine. Which I mean, is what you would be, yeah, right? Yeah. She's no, I know asking... I want to get paid. For, I, no, no, she's asking I will, for I will, volunteers. Oh, volunteers? <laughs> yes, you're not going to get paid. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, my answer is the same. <laughs> but no, I, I think you're right. I think in some of those lookouts, they can sleep there. I think that particular one, he or she hikes up every day. Yeah. yeah. That is actually a great answer because the views are incredible. You get to do a good hike every day. Um, you get to talk to people who've made the hike and tell them about the history of the lookout tower. Yeah, you could you could also, even though I know they're not technically working fire towers, you could look for forest fires, right? You could well, yeah, if you saw one, you'd say something. <laughs> right, you, right. If you see something, you say yeah. something, right? You'd but, have your binoculars out. Yeah, and I'd be just too busy talking to visitors. Yeah. Yeah, exchanging <laughs> recipes and email addresses and stuff like that. If I gave this more thought, there's probably 30 jobs like that in the National Park Service system that I would love to do. Sure. But that one comes to mind. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I think you can guess what mine is. <laughs> mine would be, without a doubt, I would volunteer at Carlsbad Caverns National Park in New Mexico, and I would want to do the cave tours. I would want to be the ranger that does you know, some of the ranger-led cave tours. You think they give that uh, job to the volunteers with, with no cave tour experience? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, all the rappelling uh, experience you uh -huh. have would come in handy. Uh -huh. yeah. Hey, on rope, off rope. That's, you know, that's all, once you that's learn all, that. That's right. all you need to know. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Yeah. But I love that place so much that I would love to show it to people. Plus, I think maybe right now they're having a ranger shortage because they have not yet brought back many of the ranger-led tours. You know, they have the King's Palace, but some of the other really fun ones they haven't brought back yet since the COVID closed down. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But I would be first up to volunteer to get that going back again and start taking people down there. Oh, you think that's what they give the volunteers? Like the volunteers, you don't get to choose what you do. You, it would probably, you would probably be administering the junior ranger oath <laughs> most, most of the day. And then you'd be flipping the bat flight uh, program sign, no bats tonight, or like uh, you would be doing that. That could be true. But you know, the thing is too, another cool one, this would be my second choice since you asked, would be doing the ranger led tours at Mesa Verde. Those 
Those were seasonal rangers, and they the ones we talked to were school teachers during the year, right? And then they came in and led the tours in the summer, but they were, I believe they were getting paid. They were not volunteers. Yeah, I think those were seasonal ranger rangers, not not volunteers. The, right. the one school teacher we had who took us to Mug House, she did a fantastic job. I mean, she was... She she was a teacher. She yes. she had her notebook and I don't know. There, there <laughs> she might, had a three ring binder. I with... <laughs> think there might have even been a quiz yeah. uh, for us. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Mary, I think this is a fantastic idea for you and your husband to think about in your retirement because we have seen in many parks we have seen married couples who do this. I guess the one piece of advice we would have is. Find the park that speaks to you. Because, for instance, we were just in the um, Horseshoe Canyon part of Canyonlands National Park. And when we got down into the canyon by the pictograph panels, there was a husband and wife team down there who were volunteering. And they were, you know, stationed down there and they were answering questions. And the reason they did it is because they loved this park so much. Right. They lived in southern Idaho and they would drive down and I think they camped up on the trailhead in their van or camper and then they would hike down every day to the place where the pictographs were and they gave people the interpretive information and told people what to look for and that was great. I I just like the uniform. <laughs> I would now I if I had to do the actual work, I would do that too. But I, I, I'd, li- I'd like to get one of those uniforms. You, you'd look pretty snazzy in that uniform. Snazzy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, who knows? We might actually end up doing that. So maybe someday, y'all, when you're at uh, Carlsbad Caverns National Park, you'll you'll see me. You'll see me flipping the um, bat flight program sign. <laughs> right. Sorry, folks. No bats tonight. The moose out front should have told you. <laughs> All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have a mailbag question for us, please send it via email to Smith at gmail.com. And if you found our more than 112 podcast episodes helpful, please consider supporting our efforts over on Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll have access to bonus content that we create just for our Patreon members. That's right. We recently uploaded a video tour of the remodel we did in our home where we turned our front living room into a National Park looking visitor center. Thanks to all of you who support us on Patreon. We really do appreciate it. We sure do.